Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 4, Episode G, The Joy of Serpents and Other Stories. So, I hear that you're interested in becoming an ancient Indian author, a poet or a biographer or something like that. Well, if so, you're in luck. Because in today's episode, we're going to be going through what you'll need to know when you're starting out on the career. I mean, not everything you'll need to know, of course. You'll need to know a few languages and have quite a few years training. But at least by the end of this episode, you'll have a pretty good picture of what life as an ancient Indian author is like. The training, how you'll be spending your day. We'll hear some of the latest work written in the Emperor Harsh's court and meet some of the authors there too. And even if you're not interested in becoming an ancient Indian author, in this episode, well, there might be some stuff of interest for us. We'll be looking into ancient Indian literature. And by literature, I mean stuff I'd read on my day off. Plays and poems and histories and that sort of thing. We're going to leave the theology and the philosophy aside. And we're not even going to be going that deep into the the poems, for example. We're not going to be looking at the nitty-gritty syllables, the metre and all that too much. Partly because I'm unqualified for that level of linguistic analysis, and partly because I find that, for me, it spoils the enjoyment. Instead, we're going to be looking at the stories about the authors, the gossip, and the juiciest bits of the juiciest tales. Ready? Let's go. We start with a bit of bad news for all you aspiring ancient Indian authors. It's going to be hard work. I mean, the actual work itself, writing poems and what have you, is not easy. But it's going to be really hard getting a job, because there are only a few really good jobs as bards at a court of one of the great kings, and there are far more candidates than will ever get one of those jobs. Even the most famous authors in ancient India often have had to wander around from kingdom to kingdom for years before they find someone who recognises their genius and gives them a job. So there's a very high chance that you become one of these wandering authors or poets, going from town to town, taking part in competitions, always trying to catch the eye of a rich patron, and maybe never succeeding. Even to have a fair shot at getting a job, you already need to do a lot of work. You're going to need an especially broad education. You'll need a good knowledge of the stories of ancient India, especially the Puranas and the epics, a big storehouse of of ideas and illusions that you can draw on in your poetry. And you're going to need to speak several languages, including, of course, Sanskrit, especially if you're in North India, but probably also if you're in the South in our period. And if you don't know Sanskrit already, trust me, It's going to take you a few years to master on its own. But suppose you get lucky. Your imagination is vivid enough. Your training is precise enough. Your practice is diligent enough. Then, then you're going to win really quite a fantastic job. Later documents tell us about the lifestyles of of poets and, and writers. And it sounds wonderful. A house, a big one clean with a, a big garden outside. And there, there will be waterfalls crashing into lily lotus ponds with artificial hills and and chairs swinging down from arched trees. In your garden, you'll have peacocks calling out, a gaggle of geese. And best of all, you move to a new house like this every season. So three of them, one for every season of the year. 
But when you're at the house, it's not all fun and games. You have to get up early. First off, you have some worship to do. Firstly to Saraswati, the, the goddess of arts and wisdom, and then to Ganesh, the remover of obstacles. You wouldn't want to be getting any writer's block. After you've done that, it's off to the library. No, no, don't get writing poetry yet. It's time to polish up your craft. Study the form, study the rules of ancient Indian writing. Look at the work of the great writers before you. Work at that for a few hours, and you should have a, a few ideas spinning around your head. Now's the time. Reach for your box. Open it out and pull out the brush stand and the inkwells and put them down. Now you could write on this, uh, this birch bark here, but it's a bit flaky and it has splotches on it, so maybe it's better to use this strip of dried palm leaf. Once your flash of inspirational poetry or biography or what have you is written down, it's time to make yourself presentable for the world. A bath, a good lunch, because soon your goshti will start. Your, your, your club, in particular your club of poets. If you're a major court poet, this club will probably be founded by a prince who might even be coming to, to listen. But a bunch of other folk would, would come too, craftsmen, maybe soldiers, maybe even some folk who weren't in the, in the urban elite, courtesans and actors, or even toileters and, and priests. So the Goshti will, will meet and talk, and most of what you'll be doing in this poetry Goshti, in this poetry intellectual club, is playing word games. Games that really keep the tools of your trade supple and, and sharp. After that, in the afternoon, in the evening, you'll go over the morning's work, the stuff you wrote down earlier. Quite likely, you'll have some help doing this. You'll have a few poets work with you who you trust, examining each word, each line, each stanza, seeing if anything should be tweaked or replaced. Finally, with the sun going down, you perform the rituals. The work you've done that day is going to be handed over to your scribe. He's a writer too, just one with really nice handwriting. He's going to copy out the final version while you go out to the theatre or to drink or to do whatever pleases you that evening. Now, I'm not really sure that anyone ever lived that day. It sounds like the sort of thing I would plan at the beginning of a long semester. I'd write it all down and I'd congratulate myself already on being so self-disciplined and hardworking. But then the first time I try and live out that day, something would happen, you know, I have to go and visit this place or that, and none of it would work out. So maybe that this picture of an author's day is a little bit unrealistic. And it does come from late sources. But there's something in the ideal which is attractive and rings true. The great modern Russian writer Tolstoy once said that you only need to write in the morning and you can spend the rest of the day working on the farm, and that farm writers who, who weren't doing this were just lazing about. Well, maybe Tolstoy could spend half a day writing and be brilliant, he was a brilliant chap, but I like this idea that poetry, that literature is hard work, day in, day out, that you have to start early in the morning and keep in a disciplined process, hour by hour, until you're done. I met someone once who, who claimed that they'd written one poem and it was really good and then they hadn't written any more. But most poets, most writers I've met, seem to practice in this diligent way. I also like this ideal of how to go about your day as an author because it makes writing a communal effort. 
I guess that's pretty rare nowadays. We tend to write alone somewhere in a shed or something. And that did happen in ancient India. There were poets who were called those who do not look at the sun. They went down in a cave to do their writing. But in the ideal we just talked about, this urban elite writer, this court bard, you would write and then normally a group of other poets would come in and work with you on your writing to perfect it. Similar things happened elsewhere in India, for example, down south in the Sangha meetings where the great poets would meet, read their work and get feedback from one another. And the sorts of games you'd play with your fellow authors in that club, they seem like a lot of fun. Clearly, a lot of these guys were very competitive, but they seemed to enjoy themselves doing it. These games that they played, they creep up in all sorts of stories of one author facing off against another in a battle of skill and wit, writing poems on the spot. Let's go through a, a few of the games. So an entry-level game, not much more than an exercise for students really, would have you forming a poem to a certain metre. You only have to fill in the words, you don't have to make them make too much sense. That's pretty easy, I think. But a more advanced game would take one of the famous classic poems, like Kalidasa's Cloud Messenger or something like that, and then the player would have to replace some of the words with other words, getting the same meaning across, whilst keeping the rhythm and the meter and, and everything exactly as it should be. I expect that's a, an exercise a bit like a, a crossword in a sense, keeping your vocabulary at the tip of your mind. Actually, I'm going to embarrass myself and give it a go. So here's the original uh, verse. It's from Kalidasa's Cloud Messenger. It goes like this. When night upon the road so thickly clings, a needle cannot prick the darkness. Draw a lightning flash of gold to lead the women out for lovers' dwellings. Do not pour down rain or thunder. They are timid things. So that's from the Cloud Messenger. It's the instructions that the Yaksha is giving to this cloud as it carries its message to his beloved. Here's my attempt to play the game, to switch out some of the words for others, keeping the same meeting, keeping the same meter and the same meaning and the same rhyme. When darkness grips the roads and won't least, till neither thorn nor sword can stab night's skin, cut down through the air a golden scar to lovers lead out to lovers' home. To them shut your tears and sorrow, they flee the storms. Actually, writing that alternative version of Kalidasa was really quite difficult. It took me a few minutes doing it. I don't think I could do it on the spot. It was also a lot easier than the, the real game that the ancient Indian writers would have had to play. Because all I was doing was taking an English translation, which has got a certain number of syllables per line and has a certain rhyme pattern, and just shifting around the words. But in ancient India, you have to follow Kalidasa's original rules, which means you have to follow a pattern that not only dictates the number of syllables, but also the length of each individual syllable. So swapping out one word for another is going to require a tremendously quick and genius mind, especially if you're doing it on the spot without writing it down. And then there's the fact that I was simply swapping one translation of Kalidasa for another, really. If we were playing the game in Sanskrit in an ancient Indian poetry club, Someone would give Kalidasa's original Sanskrit in all its glory, and then I'd have to give a go at coming up with some Sanskrit of my own, which is going to make my version seem much worse. 
The real classic game of poetry, though, the one that appears over and over again in the stories, it's simpler and it's harder. Someone starts a poem, giving you the first line, or the first couple of lines, and the game is simply to finish the poem. Usually, though, they gave you a first line which was really tricky and wouldn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. Okay, let's play the game. You can play along with me. So, how would you complete a poem that started with the line, The sky filled with a hundred moons? Tough one. How about, The sky filled with a hundred moons, now we're on Jupiter eating prunes? Um, nope. How about, The sky filled with a hundred moons, yet another Star Wars sequel looms? Yeah, perhaps not what an ancient Indian would come up with. Here are the two answers given by the two great court poets of Harsha. In translation, of course. The wrestler, stunned by the blow of Krishna's hand, saw the sky, filled by a hundred moons. That was Mayura's version, one of the great poets. In that night, on account of the lotus faces that moved to and fro on the high terraces, the sky shone as if filled by a hundred moons. That's Banner's version, the other great poet of the court. Both are much better in the original Sanskrit, but even in translation, they're pretty clever. I'll let you decide which one's best, or come up with a better one if you can. Now that we know the basics of life as an ancient Indian author, let's go off to court and meet a few of them. And the best court that we can go to is the court of Harsha, Emperor of North India. He loved a good author and he gathered quite a few around him. One of them was Bana. We've quite heard quite a lot about Bana early on in this series because he wrote this outstanding biography of Harsha. He also wrote some devotional poetry, more on that in a bit. The other great name at Harsha's court was Bana's own father-in-law, or maybe brother-in-law, it's not clear. This other chap, his name was Mayura, which is the same as Moria, which meaning peacock. And he was a bit of a peacock. His name suited him. At first, he was just another wandering poet going from court to court. But then one day, Emperor Harsha came to a poetry recital, and he happened to hear one of Mayura's poems. Mayura writes in this exceedingly thoughtful, intricate way, He's got this sort of scholarly patience about his thought. Harsha loved it. And he sent out word to say, Moira, come to my court. And presumably Moira leapt at the job. After all, his son-in-law Bana and his daughter were already, already living in Harsha's palace, so he'd have familiar faces around him, and it was a really good job too. After he was at court, Moira soon started making a name for himself. He went to Varanasi, and he took part in a big poetry competition there. And the poems had to be composed around the theme, The Adorning of a Bold Head, which seems every bit as tricky as the Hundred Moons one. Well, Myra turned up, and he had been preparing for this by fasting and meditating, and he obviously had a very clear mind because he won the competition. And with Myra, an up-and-coming poet, there was some friction between him and the other great court poet of Harsha's court, Bana. Bana was getting jealous. Harsha saw these two 
poets as, as two peacocks. And just like peacocks, they were getting ready to put out their glorious tail feathers and, and start pecking at each other. Except that the tail feathers were poems and the pecking was... You get the metaphor. Harsha sent them off to Kashmir to have their work judged by a great scholar. So Bana and Myra packed their bags and they set off towards Kashmir. On the way, one evening, Saraswati, the goddess of the arts, appeared and posed a contest for them. Great! Who better to judge which of these two poets was the true great poet, the true pundit? And the contest, the, the competition that Saraswati set for them was the one that we just heard. Complete the poem, The Sky Filled with a Hundred Moons. Myra completed it his way, da di da di da about the wrestler, and uh, Bana went, hmm, 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 and then completed it his alternative way, da di da di da about the, the faces on the balconies. So, you'd now be thinking we get to find out which of the two answers was the best one. Well, kind of. Saraswati said that Bana was worse because he'd gone hmm, 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 before the poem. And then she said to them, look guys, have some more humility. No one should be going around saying, I'm the only pundit in my time, everyone else is an idiot. Because having great minds around you makes you better. So the two peacock poets retracted their feathers, stopped pecking at one another, and went home friends. Unfortunately, though, the trouble between the two wasn't over yet. One day, Myra was going along to Banner's house, or Banner and his daughter's house, and he was still outside when he heard a quarrel. Banner and Myra's daughter, husband and wife, were fighting, and Banner had just sunk to his wife's feet trying to kiss them to, to make it up to her, whatever it was. But she kicked him in the face, kicked him off. So Banner decided to write a verse to try and get on her a good side again. Myra was outside listening at the door, and he heard him speak the first lines of the poem. Oh, slender one, the night is almost spent, the moon fading, and the lamp flickers as if it were falling off to sleep. Oh, fair-browed one, your, your heart has become hard. Alas, let my protestations cast off your pride and anger. That's my liberal translation anyway. Well, Myra, standing outside and listening to this, couldn't help himself. Years of, of training, working with other poets, had conditioned him. No, no, he shouted through the door. Don't call her fair-browed one. She's angry. Call her the passionate one. The Sanskrit word here for, for passionate has got strong connotations of anger, or even perhaps righteous cruelty, if that makes sense. Well, Myra's daughter was very angry. She stormed outside and found her father there. She was embarrassed. She was furious with the intrusion into the, the life of the husband and wife, and she cursed him to be a leper. Which, naturally, he became. Well, that's the story anyway. Did all of that happen? Hmm... The sources are late, and different sources give contradictory stories. I've actually put together my favourite parts for that version of the story. But the stories do seem to be based on the poet's real works. Those verses that Myra corrected, they are part of a poem that Myra actually wrote. Uh, it's a poem 
about a woman. I don't really understand where the idea came that the poem was about his sister or his daughter because it's a it's a very erotic poem. It's all about clinging garments and roving glances and slender waists. This is a poem about a lover. The rest of the story also seems to be based on a poem. The story goes that Myra was thrown out of court because of his leprosy. So he went to a town on the river Ganga, and there he built a swing strung up to a tree. The swing had 100 ropes tying it to the high branches of the tree, and beneath the swing he lit hot coals. Then he sat himself on the swing, and he started to improvise a devotional hymn of a hundred verses. It was a hymn about the sun god Surya. Surya was popular in Harsh's kingdom at that time. Harsh's own father and his grandfather had both been sun worshippers. So here's the first verse of Myra's improvised hymn song. The new rays of Surya bear dense particles of vermilion, like that which appears on the frontal globes of the elephant of Indra, fur of Jamba, and are red as if moistened by the floods of the liquid of the stream of metals on the slope of the Mount Sunrise, and glow as if with the luster of the clusters of lotus, a luster that appears with the advent of the sun. May these rays of Surya, which illuminate the earth, exist for your welfare. And having completed the first verse, Myra cut one of the hundred ropes holding his seat up. And then he started the next verse. The rays of Surya, maker of light, cause the unfolding of the clusters of lotuses, as if desirous to take away the splendour and the wealth, and so forth, until he reached the end of that verse, and he cut the next rope. One more slice, closer to falling into the fire and dying. And so he carried on, verse after verse, and after each verse, he cut away one of the ropes holding his seat up. Fortunately for him, the sun god Surya was pretty pleased with this and cured Myra of his leprosy. So Myra returned home to Harsha's palace. The emperor Harsha saw that his court poet had been healed of leprosy. Everyone celebrated. Now this rather upset old Bana. He got his jealousy going again, all of this praise of Myra. Now Bana wanted to upstage Myra, but he didn't have any leprosy to cure. So he did the obvious thing, he cut off his hands and his feet, and then he went to the temple and he started to recite a hundred verses, not in devotion to the sun, but in devotion to Parvati, or rather Chandi. Chandi, by the way, was the word that Myra had told Bana to use, the word for passionate anger. Chandi, listening to this, this, this song from Bana, was very pleased and gave Bana back his limbs. So goes the story. Now, those two poems the one, the hundred verses that, that Myra improvised to the sun and the hundred verses that uh, Bana improvised to Chandi, those two poems exist. And Myra's poem makes a passing reference to being saved by the sun from an ailment, which might have been the source of the whole story. The whole story about cutting one rope at a time till you got to a hundred ropes can't quite be right because Although Myra's poem is called something like 100 stanzas, 100 verses on the sun, actually it has 101 verses. So Myra would have fallen into the fire. Bana's poem is called something like 100 stanzas on Chandi. And again, it doesn't contain 100 verses, it contains 102. But anyway, who's counting? Me, apparently. 
The two poems, by the way, well worth reading if you like devotional literature. Each verse or each stanza takes the form of, of a blessing. They have the same meter, the same pattern in the original Sanskrit, but the two poems have really quite different flavors. They use dialogue in different ways, for example. They use metaphor and, and simile, or the ancient Indian uh, colleagues of those tools, differently. They're clearly the work of different authors. And that combination of, of parallels and differences makes it hard not to think that one of these poems was written in response to the other. Let's just get a, a quick sample. So here's my favorite of Myra's 101 verses. The rays of the hot rayed one at dawn caused the eastern mountain to appear for a short time as if surmounted by a beautiful crest jewel. And afterwards, they pour out a profusion of yellow pigment water for anointing the quarters on high and are knowingly treated with honour by the ruddy geese, with eyes fixed and full of longing for the blandishments of their mates. May these eastern rays of the hot red one bring to pass whatever is agreeable to your wishes. Clever stuff. Let's check out Banner's 102 verses. To understand them, you have to know just a touch about the story, the story of Chandi. So here's the 22nd rundown. There's a demon in buffalo form which attacks the gods. Shiva and Vishnu are so angry that they produce Chandi or Parvati, this, this furious god. And Chandi's given the weapons by the gods, the trident of Vishnu, the discus of Shiva and so forth. And she tricks the demon into fighting her by offering marriage if he wins. She attacks, he turns into a lion, she beats him back into buffalo form, then she takes a quick swig of liquor, charges at him, kicks him in the head, knocks him out, cuts off his head and then goes home. That's about 20 seconds. Here's the end of the fight between Chandi and the demon. When the sinful demon, foe of the gods, who had put to shame the thunderbolt of Indra, had been brought full quickly to the sleep that is ineffably long, Chandi, reft of her anger, came back to herself. And the oceans of blood flowing from the demon, issuing from the holes of the wounds caused by the trident, became three masses of the red anger streaming from her three eyes. May these oceans of blood protect you. That is a, a kick-ass blessing. And there's plenty of more brilliant stuff both poems are available in the original Sanskrit and also in English translation for free online. Before we go on to meet the other great poets at Harsha's Court, let's just talk a little bit about how people wrote poetry. I mean, we already know the practicalities, ink, you know, working before lunch, checking after lunch and all that sort of stuff. Let's think about the, the technique of writing the poem. Ancient Indian poetry and early medieval Indian poetry seems, when you first meet it, a bit uninventive. Suppose you're reading about the monsoon. You're pretty much guaranteed to read something about clouds and lightning. Fair enough. But then there are lots of other staples which almost always make their appearance. There's a man running home to his beloved, there's a swollen river, there's a peacock calling out with a joy, there's mud on the roads, and there's herons in the clouds. And that's pretty much it. The poems don't just tend to think up new metonyms, new symbols of what's going on. They just recycle this storehouse of fairly limited ones. Or else they dip into analogies from stories about the gods. 
And that description makes it seem that Indian poetry was a little bit cliched, just repeating the patterns of words when the time seemed right unthinkingly. And if I'm really honest, sometimes ancient Indian poetry feels like that to me, or at least parts of it do. But other parts don't. The good bits of ancient Indian poetry aren't like that at all. Because although they have this storehouse of illustrations, the joy of reading the poem, the cleverness of them, is in seeing how these these basic images are, are used in clever new ways. So take the peacock. The peacock's normally calling out at the approaching storm. Well, you might think that's a bit of a cliche. That's pretty much like the cock crowing at dawn. But no, it's not. Because in the poem, you might have the peacock screaming or the peacock crying. And those two words would then take you in different directions in the poem. Or it might be that the peacock's neck is arched and that, that resembles that some formation of the clouds. And the rhythms or the alliteration or the repetitions that the word that's chosen can, can be used to make can be really quite stunningly beautiful. And perhaps most of all, there can be double meanings hidden in, in, the, in the choice of words. Ancient Indian poetry is chock full of double meanings. A poem retelling the story of the Ramayana, one of the great epics, when understood in one way, might also be the story of the other great epic, the Mahabharata, when understood another. Or a poem about peacocks screaming into the storm might also be a poem about lovers missing one another in the very same words. Sanskrit just has enough words and enough ambiguity so that a really clever author can pull this sort of thing off. Bana and Mayura weren't the only two famous authors at Harsh's court. There were other authors. One of them was called Divakara, for example. He was later said to have been just as famous as Bana and Mayura. And he was famous despite the fact that he was an outcast, a chandala. But the most famous out of all of the authors at Harsh's court wasn't Bana or Mayura or Divakara. It was without a doubt, harsher. The emperor himself. Emperor Harsha is supposed to have written three plays, and a few inscriptions, and a few small poems. The three plays have come down to us, and the first two of them are basically rom-coms. There was actually a very strict formula for this sort of play in ancient India. It had four acts, and all of these plays, Harsha's and the other ones, had the same basic plot. A king is married to a queen. The king falls in love with, with a woman who's from a socially low background. The queen disapproves. The socially low woman is revealed to be a princess. The queen approves. Everyone's happy. Rom-com for ancient Indian kings. The two plots that Harsha wrote on this pattern follow the story of Udiana, king of the city of Hunchback Maidens. The city, by the way, is well within Harsha's own territory, and the king pretty clearly represents Harsha himself. So Harsha's writing himself into the rom-com. Now, stories about this king, King Udiana, they'd been around for centuries, and they were, they were pretty popular, and they tended to follow this same pattern. King married to queen, king falls in love with socially low, and queen disapproves, socially low, and revealed princess, queen approves, everyone happy. 
Sometimes these stories about King Udayana were strung into chains, with each each play telling how Udayana found his latest queen, a succession of queens. And Harsha's two plays might be thought a bit like that, because they both have the same hero and he's finding different queens in them. Though there is plenty of stuff in the second play that's copied just word from word from the first play, so perhaps it wasn't so much as a sequel as a rewrite. So here is my uneducated, utterly culturally illiterate review of Harsha's second play. It's called Priyadarshaka, which means something like the lady who shows her love. And if you don't want to hear any spoilers for a, a 1,400-year-old play, press the skip button now. Here's the plot, roughly. King Udiyana is married to the queen, and they seem very much in love. Meanwhile, far away, a palace is under attack, and a beautiful princess flees as the kingdom falls. She runs into the jungle, she drops her name, Priyadarshaka, the lady who shows love, and instead adopts the name Aranyaka, Lady of the Jungle. But while she's in the jungle, her party is attacked, she's separated from her chamberlain, and taken by attackers to King Udayana. When she comes to King Udayana's palace, she's put to work as a serving girl for the queen, because her royal identity is unknown. But King Udayana falls in love with her. They meet on some pool outside the palace. And now they have a puzzle that they're madly in love, but how can they be close to one another with the queen around? Well, fortunately, the queen wants to put on a play. A play about when King Udayana and she, the queen, met and fell in love. The story of how they met. And there's one actor who's supposed to play the role of the king and another actor who's supposed to play the role of the queen. And you can kind of see what's going to happen. With a bit of trickery, the king manages to switch place with the actor playing the king. And he gets Aranyaka to switch places with the actor playing the queen. And then right there on the stage with the queen watching and thinking it's all about her, the king gets intimate with this servant girl. As usual... Pretty soon, the queen finds out what's happened. The king, as usual, falls at her feet with regret. But the queen is unmoved. She throws the servant girl into prison. All of that is pretty much as usual. Fortunately, Aranyaka's father is restored to his throne. Her chamberlain comes back and it's revealed that she is not in fact a servant girl, but a princess who is going to be married to the king anyway. The queen is happy, the king is happy, and the new queen wants servant girl is happy. The end. That's the plot. Here's the review. Well, as a play, it's got some moments which don't really chime for a modern audience, or at least not for me. And there's something slightly odd about a man making out with another woman in front of his wife, all the while pretending that the other woman is his wife. And... If we're brutally honest, some of the poetry is a little bit middling, both in the translations and in the original. But other parts of the play are really quite good, and certainly better than anything I could do. Especially the bits talking less directly about passion for a woman and more about nature. So, for example, here's a passage where the king has just seen what he thought was a servant girl down by the lake. He's become infatuated with her, and now she's gone off. He says, yes, the day has almost bent to its close. Ah, well, 
For now the splendour of the sky, like my dearest, has gone, stealing the lustre of the lotus beds. There seems to be more redness in the orb of the sun than passion in this heart of mine. The ruddy goose, like me, stands on the bank of the lotus pond thinking of his mate, and the quarters of the sky have suddenly become dark for the whole world, as it is for me. Decent. Good. Brilliant, maybe. Some parts of the play are also quite funny, even the odd parts. So, for example, that the Queen, when she's watching the play, says, Wow, who is that? I could have sworn that's my husband. Bravo! Good acting! Thinking that it's an actor playing her husband really well, whereas in fact it's actually her husband playing an actor playing her husband really well. What hijinks. The other thing that kind of troubled me about the play is that the heroine, this lady of the forest, this servant girl, is not very likable. For example, she's sent to find a feat in her new job, and she's guided to a pretty nice-sounding lake surrounded by trees. Seems like a pretty decent job. But she whinges the whole way there, talking about how terrible it is that she has to follow orders now, now that her kingdom's been destroyed. And she's a little bit of a coward too, screaming for help at any surprise. But the king sees all of this as a a good thing, as firmness, quite clearly indicating good breeding. But any criticisms I have, almost certainly my fault, because ancient and early medieval Indians treated these plays as absolute classics, paradigms of what a good play should be like. They follow the rules of theatre precisely. They become models which playwrights from later centuries would look back on, seeing how to write, how to craft a plot. Harsha's third play is something quite different. It's called The Joy of the Serpents. And it starts pretty much the same way as the other ones do. There's a king who's lost his kingdom, and he happens to chance upon a woman. And he's infatuated at first sight. Then she finds out she's a princess, marries her, everything's grand, so far, so conventional. You'd be forgiven for thinking that this, the joy of the serpents, is just another crowd-pleaser on the old format, but then it takes a turn. The king looks up and he he spots what seem to be snow-capped mountains in the distance. No, 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 he's told, that isn't snow, those are heaps of snake bones, because the snakes made an agreement with the Garuda bird to send one snake each day for the Garuda's meal. Otherwise, the Garuda would come up and and eat all of the snakes. Well, the king, the hero of the story, stumbles across this snake, who's just been told that it's his turn. He's the next one to be eaten. So the king takes the poor chap's place, thinking that that his life is worth nothing if he can't sacrifice it for for this snake chap. All ends well, when the king's life is restored by a god and he regains his kingdom. The play seems to have Buddhist themes, and many historians think that it it came later in Harsha's life, when either he became a Buddhist outright or he was heavily influenced by his sister's Buddhism. A couple of historians do say that there aren't really any Buddhist ideas in the play, but I really can't understand why, because everything from this reiteration again and again of of ahimsa, of non-violence, to the way that the Garuda is is talked about, all seem to indicate a pretty heavy Buddhist influence. This seems to be one of those very rare Buddhist plays that have come down to us. It's also 
important as a play for playwrights like the other two of Harsha's plays. This is one of the earliest or maybe the earliest attempt to get the flavour, the rasa of renouncing, of indifference to the world communicated to the audience. Now, personally, I find it slightly less entertaining than the earlier two plays, which are great fun. Something about it doesn't jive me too well, but I'm pretty sure that's a shortcoming in me somewhere. But there is one section that really draws me in on the basis of the plot alone. In all of these plays, there's a jester. And the jester plays a very conventional role. They are the friend of the king or the hero. They're always, I think, or at least almost always a Brahmin. And they either are the trickster arranging all the trickeries so that the hero can meet up with the heroine, or they moan about things in a comical way which shows that they misunderstand the world. Now, in ancient Indian plays... The jester is is never really trying to challenge society. He's not up there to make fun of the prevailing social norms. He's just there to let the audience let off a bit of steam about how those norms can be misapplied. So the jester isn't mocked for what he is or for his approach to life. He's only mocked for the silly things that he gets up to. But in this play, the jester seems to be properly mocked, not for what he does, but for what he is, his his outlook on life. There's this section after the king gets married where the jester is kind of lost and he gets mistaken for for a common reveller. There's a drunkard and a servant girl and they come along and they don't know who he is and they start to have fun with him and josh around with him and they say, yeah, touch her feet, touch her feet. And he refuses to touch her feet because he's a Brahmin and they kind of keep on winding him up and he gets more and more worked up and looks more and more ridiculous. And it's hard not to see this as a a Buddhist jab, making fun at the norm, the idea that Brahmins shouldn't touch servants. Anyway, it's a, a bit of a different take on the jester figure, a bit more weighty than the stuff that the jesters normally get up to. So who wrote these poems? Well, They say they're written by Harsha, and there's no other Harsha or no other King Harsha around at the right time to have written them other than the the Emperor Harsha we've talked about in this series. And clearly, whoever wrote these plays knew a great deal about King Harsha. There are a lot of elements of Harsha's own life that are mirrored in in the plays. There's a princess in jail, there's a princess lost in the forest, things that Harsha's own sister had suffered. There's a kingdom attacked when the king was indisposed, something that had happened to Harsha's own brother, and there are a dozen other parallels between the plays and Harsha's own life. But there is some serious question about whether these plays really were written by Harsha. A lot of modern scholars think they aren't. There's a bit of innuendo cast against Harsha being the author all the way back at the 9th century. Someone pointed out that Harsha had paid his court poet a lot of money, a hundred crores of gold. And so plenty of scholars think that the court poet, Banner, wrote the plays and then Harsha took the credit for them. Banner even includes in his own works an apparent reference to the jeweled necklace of the first play. The title of the first play is Lady of the Jeweled Necklace. So many people think that Banner wrote it and then Harsha took the credit, but I'm not so sure. 
For one thing, kings generally didn't claim to be authors much in ancient India. And Harsha definitely did claim to be an author. Everyone who met him knew that he was an author. And to make it clear, he mentioned it in inscriptions too. For another thing, I like Barnard's work. I like it a lot. It's one of my favourite books in any language and in any time. At least the, the Harsha Charita, the biography of Harsha is. But these plays, they don't seem to be from the same pen. They just lack... I can't really put my finger on it. I'm not a good enough poet. But there's something about Bunner's writing which just isn't, isn't there. And then there's the sorts of flattery that the king gets in these three poems... They're the sort that you might expect a real king to really want. They're not about power of armies, all the usual stuff that people say about kings. They're more about seeing the virtue in his enemies where no one else can. Stuff that would really speak to the ego of a king. Really though, it's just my gut feeling that this stuff wasn't written by Banner. It was written by Harsha, or else perhaps it was a mix with Banner helping Harsha starting the plays off and then Harsha finishing them. That would explain why some of the play is well written, and other parts, not so much. Well, so much for the authors at the court of Harsha, Emperor of North India. Actually, this was a pretty unique time in ancient Indian history because it was a time of poet kings. Down south, Harsha's enemy's enemy was also writing plays, and one of them has come down to us. It's entirely different in, from Harsh's in almost every way. It's more risque, and I think it's more funny too, but that's a story for another episode. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week I thought we'd read from that third of Harsh's plays, Nagananda, the joy of the serpents. After all, it's the title of the episode. So we're going to read the section where the king goes in place of the serpent to be eaten by the Garuda to save the serpent's life. It goes like this. I will quickly mount the execution rock. This is the king. Oh, the rapture of its touch. Not so much does Malyavati delight me, moist with the sound of juice of Malia, as this rock of execution, which I embrace to the furtherance of my desired object. Rather, what need of mentioning Malyavati? No such joy is attained by one in childhood lying peacefully in his mother's lap, as by me on the rock of this execution. Here comes Garuda. I must veil myself. Here I am. In a moment arrived on the shore side of the Malian Mount, greedy to devour the snake. When I saw the moon's disc, I was reminded of the form of Shisha, the great snake, coiled up in a circle through fear. My elder brother joyfully recognised me when the sun was shaken by the sudden start of his chariot steed as I passed. My long wings as I fly stretch out still longer by reason of the clouds that hang from them in festoons. Through merit, this is the king again, that I gain today by protecting a snake at the sacrifice of myself, May I still obtain in succeeding existences a body to be sacrificed for others. Speedily will I catch up and eat this snake, said the Garuda again, dressed in red garments, who looks as if besmeared with blood which gushes from his heart that has burst through fear of me. 
I will first split open with my beak, which is fiercer than the fierceness of a thunderbolt, the breast of this one who has fallen on the surface of the execution rock to save the rest of the snakes. The Garuda comes down. Flowers shower down and drums sound. The Garuda is astonished. Why, why does this shower of flowers fall, rejoicing the bees with their fragrance? Why does this noise of drums cause the quarters of the sky to re-echo? Ah, I know what it is. I conjecture that even the tree of paradise itself is shaken by the wind of my speed, and the clouds of doomsday give forth their growl, anticipating the world's immediate annihilation. The king. Good luck. I've attained my desire. Garuda. Seizing the hero. Although this protector of the snakes seems to be more like a human being, still truly he shall satiate today my hunger for snake flesh. So I will take him and ascend the Malian mountain and there eat him at my pleasure. Then there's a bit of section whilst the, the snake who the king has replaced goes to the king's parents and tells them what's happened and then rushes up the mountain to try and save him. Meanwhile, back up on the mountain, the Garuda is halfway through his meal. Never since my birth has so wonderful a thing been seen by me in my feasts on the Lords of the Snakes. Not only is the hero unterrified, but he even appears almost delighted. There's no lassitude seen in him, though most of his blood is drunk up. His face, through its heroic endurance, even when he is suffering the pangs from the tearing of his flesh, seems serene as if in ecstasy. Every limb which is not actually destroyed bristles with rapture. His glance falls on me, whilst doing him an injury as if I was doing him a favour. Hence, by his heroism, my curiosity is excited. I will not eat him. I will ask him who he is. The king. There is yet flesh in my body, whose blood pours forth from every vein, and you, magnanimous one, do not seem satiated. Why then, O Garuda, do you stop eating? of wonders. How, even in this state, does he speak so stoutly? This heroism of thine seems to call back the heart's blood that has been poured out by my beak. I wish, then, to hear who thou art. So, there you have it. That's this week's episode. I hope that now you've got enough to get started on your career as an ancient Indian author, all you'll need is a time machine, a few years training and a good knowledge of Sanskrit. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you have been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snail Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website. There's a link in the description. Have a great week. Take care.